0: Remain standing for our scripture this morning. Uh, there's several different parts of Esther that we're going to be reading um, I'm going to be reading for quite a while um, I tried to get Morgan Freeman in here thought that would be a little more soothing But you have Steve pink so if you would turn um, To Esther 2 is where we'll start and I'll let you know where we break and move into a different chapter Esther 2 19 through 23 our text this morning says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the gate at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred of her or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as, as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Big Then and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the to Queen Esther, and Esther told that told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affairs were was investigated and f- found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the chronicles in the presence of the king. Esther three, one through six. After these, after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agatite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. And the king had, had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Esther 4, 8 through 17, and this will be our last reading this morning for the sermon. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, For their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and and explained it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of their of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had to say or had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say all the king's servants. And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days." And they told Mordecai and Esther had said, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and the young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him this is the word of the Lord you may be seated
1: thank you Steve Uh, you may think that we started including other people reading the scripture to include them but no I just got tired of reading all those names and so want other people to suffer through it no that's not true um Just wait till we start preaching numbers. Um, You folks are going to enjoy that. Uh, I don't have plans for that in the near future, by the way. Um, Hey, so we're back in Esther, third sermon from this book. And so, as a review, we've been looking at the first, from the first two sermons uh, in this series, we've been looking at how God works, how God works. Uh, we've been applying and hopefully applying these truths to our daily lives. What we've been seeing is that God is working simply and quietly through our everyday lives. And, and as he works quietly and in the, as we call the mundane, he's not working towards the fruition of our plan or my plan. He's working to bring about his eternal plan, his plan. And so uh, we, we've got some of these questions we've been facing, and hopefully we've been asking ourselves these questions. Uh, are we holding God to an expectation that he's going to communicate or work in our lives a certain way? It's a good question to ask, to evaluate where we're at? Or are we locked onto our agenda and our lives? Another good question. Now these questions are meant to, at times from the scripture, to assail the, the walls we've built up around the areas of our life that we don't want God to touch. And so these questions are a bit deconstructive. They're asking us to allow, allow some sinful areas of our life to crumble. They're meant to challenge us And so this morning, we're actually, we're back to looking at Esther and Morty. I figure we've known each other a couple weeks. He can let me, he'd let me call him Morty. Um, We're looking at them. And so I was thinking about last week. We looked at last week how this decree went out from Xerxes that all the young women would be taken into the harem. And we said, you know, we weren't really sure how how Mordecai and Esther would take this. Were they disappointed? Was this a good thing? And the more I've been thinking about this, I think the author is a genius for leaving that out. I'm sure he was waiting for my approval of a book of the Bible. But um, listen, think about this. If, if we had been told that they were blessed by this news, there would be a temptation for us to think, well, God must only work through blessing. And so God works by giving us things we like If they had been disappointed, he said, this is really terrible news. We might be tempted to think, well, God only works through things going terrible in our lives. Instead, he didn't say anything about how they felt. And I believe it's so he could focus on something even more important. And that is that no matter how Morty and Esther felt, good or bad, they had a choice to make. And what was that choice? To obey or not. As we're going to look at today in this long passage of scripture, really the end of Esther 2 through Esther 4 is we're gonna look at how Esther and Mordecai obeyed in the little things, in the little things. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you for this book of the Bible. Thank you for the Old Testament and its richness. I pray this morning for myself, for my brothers and sisters here at Grace, for those joining us online. Lord, I pray that we would be open to what you have for us this morning, conviction, encouragement. I pray, Lord, that we would have open hearts and that your spirit would speak to us where we need to be spoken to through your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I find it helpful once again to compare Esther and Exodus. Okay, I, I didn't mean to think this would be an ongoing theme we did it a couple weeks ago but I want you to think about the beginning of Exodus if you're familiar with that story Moses is called into something and the reason I think it's it's fair to compare these two books is both Exodus and Esther the end result is the same in Exodus what is God doing he's saving his people in Esther what is God doing he's saving his people but the differences between these two books help us highlight some things Think about how God called Moses to obedience in Exodus. Think of the things that he famously did. So what's the first one? He caused a bush to light on fire, but the fire didn't burn it up. And from that bush, he called out with a loud voice. And so think about this. God is giving a very big command with a big voice to Moses. You're going to go and you're going to do this thing. Later, he'd call up from heaven and say, here's, he wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. Let Moses see his back, and his face ended up glowing in one of his interactions with God. And so in Exodus, God is speaking with a big voice, but here... In Esther, God is not giving any of those kinds of commands. There's no burning bush. There is no immediate encounter with God. And so as we compare the two and we see the obedience that that takes place in these chapters, we, we might call them small obediences. I know it's not a word. Or four times that Esther and Mordecai obey God, obey God. Let's take a look at these. We've got a little bit of a Mordecai sandwich. So Esther's the bread. We've got two obediences from Esther and then two from Mordecai in the middle. <clears throat> so first and foremost, Esther is twice marked as someone who's obedient to her father, Mordecai. Look, it's mentioned in verse 10 in chapter 2, but look at verses 19 and 20. Now, when the virgins were gathered together, the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. And there's some commentary here. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So in these small moments, even to Mordecai saying, listen, take this wisdom from your father. Don't tell the the person in charge of the harem your, your origin, your race. And she obeys him. And now this might seem insignificant, but we can see how Esther's small obedience in this one place with Mordecai ends up having massive consequences for God's plan. And so the author feels it is necessary to make sure we know that Esther has an obedient attitude towards her father. We move on to the next verse, verse 21 And Mordecai also has two instances where he is obedient or he's faithful to God's word. So first, look at the beginning of verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So let's stop there. First of all, when I was a kid, I'm not sure why this was. I always imagined Mordecai as a homeless guy. I don't know why. I don't know why. I I think maybe the flanagraph in children's church had him as a homeless guy. I don't know. Maybe they were mistaken, but he is not a homeless guy. He's had a promotion in fact. And so what it means to be at the king's gate is that you are now part of the judicial system. He's a judge. At the king's gate is where arbitration takes place. And so Mordecai here, probably because of of his his pedigree, remember he's related to Saul, because of Esther's new position with the king, he has been brought up to this high official in the king's court. And so Mordecai is there. He's serving in his new job. And then we have what happens in the rest of verse 21. <clears throat> Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King As You Hear Us. So uh, he's on duty, he's doing his thing. It comes to his attention that two of the king's servants, his closest confidants, his bodyguards, are not happy with the way that King Xerxes is ruling, and so they're going to try to kill him. They're going to try to kill him. And so what happens? Uh, he uh, was. He overhears and he reports to Esther. He's faithful to the king. Look at verses 22 and 23. And this knowledge, uh, this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So he immediately reports This assassination plot. By his report, the the plan is foiled, and what it says here is it was recorded in the presence of the king. This is important, apparently. Um, Normally, in this day and age, if you were to do such a thing for the king, there would be an immediate and generous reward to you and your family, but what's happened here is it's showing that Xerxes kind of shrugged it off. Yes, it was recorded. He did nothing about it. He did nothing about it. So if you kind of put two and two together, the the, the people who are closest to Xerxes, his bodyguards, want to kill him. And now he's not really taking care of those who are taking care of him. So Xerxes, we can kind of get a sense, is not a very good leader. Maybe a little bit of a jerk. Who knows? I suppose he's allowed to be. Um, But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Mordecai heard of a plot to kill the king, and he obeyed God's law. Why? Because murder is wrong. And so he reported. He had a choice to make to be a silent partner in whatever is happening here, or to report it. And he chose to report it. Now, we get to some fun stuff. Cue the bad guy music. Enter Haman. Haman is fascinating. We're going to talk a lot about Haman next week. Uh, But for now, all we need to know is this. Verse 1, and after these things, from chapter 3, after these things, king, as you hear us, promoted Haman the Agagite, I think that's the one that comes from the ceiling. I'm not sure. Um, the son of, some of you are not understanding that joke. You just go ahead and think about that later. That's really bad. That was a dad joke, I think. Um, uh, the son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So what the author wants you to see is Mordecai, the faithful Jew being passed over by the king. He did the right thing. He got no reward, and here we have Haman. We're going to learn more about Haman next week, and it's going to add to the tension. But he wants you to feel this tension that this other person, who has no uh, that we know of good things to his name, is being being lavished with gifts by the king. And so Haman and Mordecai are going to be at odds for the rest of Esther. Mordecai, in this place, what happens? beginning of verse two and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate that would include mordecai bowed down and paid homage to haman for the king had commanded so concerning him i want you to start thinking a little bit again of daniel and his friends shadrach meshach and abednego they had a similar situation much longer before this where they were commanded by nebuchadnezzar to bow to not pray and what did they do they had to make a choice so remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Mordecai, he, he was a faithful Jew. He was, had deep Jewish roots at home. And in his life, he was a faithful servant to the kingdom. And until this moment, those two things were simpatico. They were compatible. He had lived as a Jew and lived as a Persian. And there was no issue. But now what's happening? He has to make a choice. Do I remain faithful to my God or faithful to my kingdom and my king? And what does he do? He chooses not to bow. Now, that choice that he makes, as you see here in the end of verse 2 into verse 4, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. The king's servants were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? This seems foolhardy to them. Just bow down. You have this new job. Stop doing that. And what's his answer? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. What's the reason he won't bow? It doesn't say it explicitly, but what does it mean to be a Jew? You are faithful to worshiping God alone. Judaism is a a one God religion. And so he makes his stand. He does not bow. And what's the result Uh, genocide Haman is so angry about this he chooses to instigate a plot of genocide I'm going to kill all the Jews let's pause for a moment before we get to the last piece of bread how has obedience gone for Mordecai so far how's it gone he he reported a plot And we can't know what his motivations were, right? I don't think he did that to get the reward. But if if he did report that to get the reward, it did not go well. The king, ah, okay, thanks, thanks. We'll write that down. And now he's chosen to stand up. He's chosen to stand up for his faith, and is resulting in genocide. Mordecai of all the people that, that we've read in this story so, f- so far, has a lot of reasons to just be like, you know what, this obedience thing is not all it's cracked up to be. I'm out. But what do we see from Mordecai? He continually obeys. <clears throat> we get to the last small opportunity to obey. It doesn't seem small. We'll get to that in a moment. But Esther, once again, is obedient to her father. And we get to chapter 4. So the story's thickening a little bit. This, this decree has been issued. The king has agreed with Haman. Yes, we will kill all the Jews. And he sets a date and time, which is very organized, I suppose, for genocide. and even to the point where uh, Haman pays him a, a large amount of money to make this happen. And so we can see here that the King Xerxes is actually very easily manipulated. Think about all the people that have given him an idea and he just goes with it in this book. He's not very powerful at all, is he? And so here we have th- this decree is set. All the Jews will be murdered on this day. And so Mordecai hears about this. Of course, he's in a position where he would. And so what he does, he enlists Esther in a plan to prevent this. And Mordecai gave uh, Hatak a copy of the written decree. He wants him to give it to Esther and that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her. This This is the second time this word command has been used and it's always about Mordecai telling Esther to do something, to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, Esther explains to Mordecai, that there's a little bit of a difference in this particular ask of him. And so in verse 11, she says, please tell Mordecai this, all the king's servants and the people of the provinces know that if any man or woman <clears throat> goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So she's saying, dad... I would like to do what you're asking me to do, but there is a major risk here. The king has not called me in. The king has not invited me. And and this might mean death. And what does Mordecai do? He says, we have to do this. And so what happens? Esther's obedience... Occurs Now, it might seem like a big obedience. We were talking about this a moment ago with burning bushes and, and voices from heaven and things like that. And when you look at what Esther is going to do, the risk she's taking, and I love this. She says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That is gutsy, folks. That is gutsy. But I want us to think about it this way. She's not obeying a booming voice from the, from the heavens. There's not been this supernatural sign of this is what she ought to do. Her dad has told her to do it. And what does she do? She obeys. She obeys. It's a small obedience. There's no dream. There's no special message from heaven. Her face isn't glowing. None of those things. At great, great, great risk to herself, she obeys her father. So we can see That in these four instances, Esther and Mordecai are engaged in simple, small obedience, and they have no idea of the outcome. That's the that's the that's the thing that occurs in every single one. They don't know how it's gonna turn out. They are just obeying. If you're like me, you too struggle with obedience, especially in the small things. I think in our lives we think about this, we think about what God wants us to do as Christians. And I think we have an attitude, I know I do at times. Well, the big stuff, sure, I'll do what God wants me to do in the big stuff. But it's in those little nooks and crannies of our life where we feel like, well, it's just it's just a small thing. It's just something insignificant. And we think that that if we're obeying the big stuff, the little stuff really doesn't matter, and we can keep that off limits from God in our lives. And the reality is, church, the reality is for me, that's not obedience. That's not the obedience that God desires from us. In Esther, the good choices that are made, however you want to, however you want to, whatever perspective you want, the obedience is given, the faithfulness that the author recognizes. Listen again: no burning bushes, no voices from heaven, no major dreams. It's small in comparison to other things we've seen. But here in Esther, what's the story about? It's about God's people obeying in regular ways in extraordinary circumstances. God's people obeying in regular ways in extraordinary circumstances. So what is God's will for our life? What's God's will for our life? God's will for our life is our obedience even in the small things. Even in the small things. The last couple of weeks, we've had an opportunity to kind of assail bad thinking, remembering, okay, God's working in small things, not necessarily only big things. He's working quietly in the mundane. It's not necessarily him coming and shouting at me. God's working toward the fruition of his will, towards the building of his kingdom, not my kingdom. And these realities really bring an interesting joy for us in obedience because as we obey, even in the small things, it gives significance. That significance is that as we obey, as Esther did and Mordecai did, in these small ways, we're participating in the building of God's kingdom. We're participating in God's eternal will just by small obedience. We don't need a big obedience moment. We don't need a burning bush or a dream or a special mission. We have the Bible and we have God's commands and he's calling us into faithfulness. As we obey in the small things, we are participating in God's establishment of his kingdom. That's exciting to me. That's exciting to me. And so God, yes, he's working behind the scenes. Yes, he's working towards the fruition of his plan. And guess what? He's also working in every single small opportunity we have to obey him. He's working in it. He's working in it. And so when we obey, we're fulfilling his eternal will. I don't have time to read it. Well, I guess we do. Steve read it enough today, I guess. But um, if you read 1 Peter 1 and 2, you will see this all collected. Peter's talking about obedience and how we follow Christ and how we sharpen ourselves. And all of that is one of the foundational pieces of him, God building up his church. Our obedience is incredible. And so as we see in Esther, it's the same in our lives. God is working in our life in significant ways when we, like Esther, obey our parents. <laughs> when we obey our parents, we're building God's kingdom. Now, parents, you can hold it over your kid's head this afternoon, I suppose. So um, we're, we're building God's kingdom when we do the right thing in an awkward situation. I don't know if I should report this or not. What's, what does God want you to do? God's building his kingdom. God's building his kingdom when you answer the questions of your coworkers about your choices, your odd choices to them. Mordecai, why aren't you bowing down? Hey, I'm a Jew. I don't do that. Now, you wouldn't say I'm a Jew. You'd say I'm a Christian. Of course, you get the connection here. But as we do those simple, small things where we're participating in God's eternal plan, it's mind-blowing. And so the last few weeks, again, we've been kind of allowing some of these, hopefully these sinful areas of our life to crumble a little bit. And as we move in this direction of of Esther, this is a moment where we can begin a little bit of reconstruction in those areas. We can begin reconstruction. God's will, this is a reality we have to face, Christian. God's will always includes obedience. It just does. It always includes obedience, Being a follower of Christ involves obedience. It includes it. It's part of it. God's grace leads us to obedience. In fact, think of the life of Jesus Christ. And look at all the areas of his life that had to do with obedience. Jesus lived a perfect life. He obeyed everything about God's law. He obeyed everything. And and all those little things that he obeyed, guess what happens in faith? All that obedience is imputed to us. It's given to us as if it's ours. Obedience is important. It's so important that the obedience of Jesus is graciously and freely given to God's people as if we did it. Now think about also his wretched death on the cross. Not only was he nailed to a cross because of, guess what? Our disobedience. But listen to how Paul talks about the cross in Philippians. Jesus was obedient even unto death. Isn't that a funny way of saying that? But it's what it was. Jesus Christ obeyed the will of God. Now, that was a big obedience that we don't have to do, thankfully. But guess what it was? It's an obedience that gives us forgiveness of our sins. And then, of course, the glorious resurrection of Christ. In his resurrection, what happens? We are created anew. We're brought into the new creation with him. And two places where Paul talks about this in Ephesians, it says in the end of Ephesians 2, we are created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. And then back to Philippians, it says God works and wills in us to do good. And so listen, as we learned from 1 John just a few weeks ago, When we encounter God and His grace and all those things that Jesus Christ did on our behalf, it changes us. And part of the change is our perspective on obedience. It's not ho hum, it's not because we have to. We have the ability to, and God calls us into His eternal plan, even through small obedience. Even though we're sinners. We don't deserve the opportunity to obey. God and his grace and his love and his mercy calls us into it anyway, anyway. And so as we think about these things, here's some questions that we can ask ourselves. Where do I feel personally a pull towards obedience? Where do I feel God saying, here's an area of your life I want you to to obey? Where do you feel a pull toward knowing God more deeply? Listen, both of the answers to that question are God's grace. It's his grace. He's not rubbing your nose in it. He's saying, come with me, join my plan, be a part of my kingdom. And much like Esther and Marty, our good buddy Marty, we may not know exactly how it's gonna turn out in the short run. Some obedience seems risky. Personally risky. Man, what if I step away from this thing that I love so much and I never get it again? That can feel risky. Or what if I tell these people at work that I know Jesus? That seems risky. What if I share Jesus with this person? They may not want to be my friend anymore. It seems risky. But here's the thing. We may not know how it's going to turn out, but here's how we can obey and joy anyway. Because in our simple obedience... We're called, we're joined, we're participating in the furthering of God's eternal plans. We're participating in it. Now, as we look at this combination of this mixture of obedience and grace, I think that is a a great segue into the Lord's Supper. Right here in the Lord's Supper, we have both Grace and obedience, both factors. First of all, grace. We have the broken bread and the spilt blood. We have the bread and the juice and the wine, whichever you, you prefer. And, and in that, what is that? That is grace. We could not save ourselves. We were sinners without a hope that anything could turn out right because why? It was all broken. It was all messed up. And what did God do? He loved us so that he sent his only son to redeem that for us. That's grace. We didn't earn it. We still don't. It's for us for free by faith. That's grace. But then also you have this thing where Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper and what does he do? He gives a command. Do this in remembrance of me. And so you see the mingling of grace and obedience. It's not a ho-hum, I guess I'll eat some bread. No, it's I get to participate in God's kingdom. That's what the Lord's Supper is. So this morning, if you are a sinner and you know it, you've disobeyed, even this morning, and you know it, and you know that Jesus Christ is the only way through that disobedience to forgiveness and obedience on the other side, if you've made that profession of faith, you've been baptized, you're called into God's plan this morning simply by trusting that eating this little piece of bread and drinking that little cup of liquid is participating in God's grace. That's what it is. Obedience is... And grace. Now this morning, if you don't believe those things, either I'm not a sinner or I don't need to obey, or I don't know who Jesus even is. I don't think that he is who you're saying he is. The Bible makes it clear. This is not an opportunity for you to come have a snack. It's, it's actually something deeper, more meaningful than that. And so the Bible and us as a church, we'd ask you to not participate if that's where you're at this morning. So we're going to take just a moment. We're going to pray quietly, and then I'll join us together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute the elements. This morning, Father, I wanna pray, first of all, a blessing over these elements, Lord. I pray that you would be in our hearts, and in our minds, in our conscience, in our soul this morning, reminding us of this intermingling of grace and obedience and how obedience really is a grace. It's grace. That we obey at all is grace. That we have the desire to obey at all is grace. The desire to come and eat this bread and drink this cup, to remember what Christ has done it is not able to be done without your working and willing it in us. And so we praise your name for all that you do for us, even in the small things. Lord, I also just want to say thank you for what you do for sinners. I pray, as we read in the Valley of Vision today from our confession of sin, that we truly would take our sin very seriously, but we would never take it so seriously seriously that it overcomes the amount of grace that you give. Lord, I pray that we would take your grace seriously, that we would dive deep headfirst into the reality of our sin, the stink of our hearts, the rot of our souls, but every inch deeper that we go into that muck, we would be reminded that, that your grace is much bigger, much, much bigger than any of that, and it cleanses us from all of it. And so I pray, Lord, that that would be the song in our hearts, that mingling of grace and obedience, that mingling of joy and sorrow, and that we would come to you this morning dependent upon you for the meaning of this meal. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.